Hi there! This is the PowerPoint Tribe, where our vibe is faith and our food is the Word. Prepare to be strengthened and encouraged through the teachings of God's Word and the ministry of the Spirit. 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. This has got to be one of the most remarkable Edom moments in Scripture. Hmm? By the way, you guys didn't ask me for my Edom moments. <laughs> You're coming. So let me just say it already. Um, I think my favorite Edom moment was Joshua, right? That, that has to be top three, man. Like, how do you tell the sun? Who, who, who you be? Like, you tell the sun, the constellations. Like, there are several planetary bodies relying on the sun alone. Not just Earth. <laughs> just, let's even talk about, you know, let's not talk about the several other people on Earth whose life are going to be changed forever because of that request of yours. There are other planetary bodies that rely on the sun and revolve around it. And then you tell the sun to stand still. Like, are you joking? And the sun obeyed. <laughs> you know, remarkable Edom moment. Really remarkable. Amen. Life has not remained the same ever since. Joshua is still influencing our lives. <laughs> till right now, honestly, he is. Praise the name of the Lord. Uh, but, you know, 1 Samuel 17 would also come close in, in that hierarchy. Praise the name of the Lord. So we'll be, we'll be sharing thoughts this morning about the man David and how he fulfilled some of the things we shared last week about, you know, the litmus test for discerning the will of God. This guy manifested all of these three things in 1 Samuel 17. And we'll be seeing him as a prototype, as a framework that we can follow and replicate hopefully in our lives. Praise the name of the Lord. You know, what were the three things that we said was going to be the litmus test for discerning the will of God? The first thing, love being the most excellent way. So, um, love is the highest motive for God. All right? For God so loved. That's the highest possible motive that God has to do anything. Anything inspired by God's love is consistent with his will. Okay, so for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And love is the most excellent way. So whilst you're walking in love, you cannot be wrong, all right? Except there's something faulty in your love walk that you can be out of God's will. If you're walking in alignment with the love of God in your heart, you cannot be diametrically opposed to the will of God. Praise the name of the Lord. All right, so the will of God is always consistent with the love walk. Remember Balaam, all right, Balaam was praying to God, should I go? But his heart, all right, wanted to go because of the greed in his heart. So he was not in a loving relationship with the Father. He was not in a loving relationship with Israel, even though he seemed to be a prophet to Israel. All right, so when the people came, all right, and brought the dainties to him and, you know, the first time he said, no, 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 let me ask God first. And then God told him, don't go. And then the second time, you know, they came again and they brought even more, you know, promises of reward. And then he went back to ask God again. But if you heard the first time, you should have just told them the second time, okay, that God said, I shouldn't go. Except he now interrupts you himself and says, okay, now go. But you keep going back to him and asking him, should I go? Should I go? Then God realizes that indeed your heart is with them. There's greed in your heart. And then God permits him to go. It was never the will of God for him to go with them. There was greed in his heart. And of course, that's not consistent with love. And we could see down the line how he erred away from the very counsel of God because he was away from the love walk, the love path. 
If you would always judge your decisions by the love metric, you won't go wrong. You won't go wrong. You won't go wrong. Check your heart. Are you patient? Are you kind? All right? Uh, do you suffer long? Do you give people second, third, fourth chances? Do you believe the best of people? That they did something before in the past does not make that their identity. Give them a second chance because you won't be here today if we wouldn't give you 16 chances. Do you see? Imagine we believed the first of your errors and we said that is who you are for life. How hard would it be to get into people's good books? But that's who we really were before. We started out sinners. We started out sinful. So if God believed that as our only state, he saw the best of us. He saw what we could be. And that's what love would always do. Love would always keep believing the best of the worst of us. And so don't be that kind of person that, ah, once you offend me once like this, that's the end. No, but you can't, no second chance, no third chance, you know. Don't be that way. Be a lover. Praise the name of the Lord. All right. So love is a very powerful way of checking, all right, that you are in the will of God for your life. And you're, you're walking in alignment with the will of God. The love walk. It's very powerful. Very powerful. God can change your life by you just walking in love. Just walk in love, forgive, be a blessing, serve, love. Or of course, the second litmus test, what's it? The word, the word, very powerful as well. The Bible talks about how that the word of God is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So the word of God is the highest explanation to God, all right? So if you ask for another explanation after God's word has come to you, God has no higher explanation to give you apart from his word. It's the perfect representation of God's person. That's the word of God. And so when God's word comes to you, there is no bigger manifestation of God to you than his word. And so, um, like I said last week, if you read the entire corpus of scripture, you are going to be able to um, give yourself the platform to discern the specific will of God for your life. All right. So if you understand the general prophetic, you can, you can discern the personal prophetic. Do you understand? You can discern the personal prophetic. God can speak to you in moments. God can release a word and make it come alive in your spirit and give you an instruction, a now word. He can give your home an instruction. He can give your church an instruction just by you spending time in God's word. All right? You won't lack personal direction if you don't lack the word of God in your heart. You won't. God's word is that which God uses to set your path aright. All right? David said that thy word have I hidden in my heart. That I will not sin against you. That means I will not miss the mark. That I would always stay on cause. He also said that how shall a young man cleanse his ways? How shall he make his ways perfect? How shall he make his ways, you know, straight with the Lord? Psalms 119, 9 and 11. How shall a young man cleanse his ways? He said by taking heed therewith according to the word of God. So the word of God is so important. All right, lean on your own understanding in all that ways. Acknowledge him. How do you acknowledge God? Is by going to his word, his opinion about life. That's the word of God. His idea about how sh things should go, how things should run. That's the word of God. So go there as often as you can. Renew your mind to the word of God. And then the more you renew your mind to God's word, the more you're able to understand his heart concerning any matter. Praise the name of the Lord. But when we do not read the Bible, we always rely on third-party prophets who may not have the right motives all right, to influence us and lead us in their own wheels that would benefit them. And, and so the only way to judge prophecy is to be acquainted with God's word, which is the more sure word of prophecy. So every other prophecy is subordinate to the more sure word of prophecy. Amen. 
And God's word is the more sure word of prophecy. So if any other person comes to you and begins to give you prophecies that are not in alignment with the more sure word, you can tell them that it's not part of the curriculum of prophetic words. It's not part of what should be, you should be telling me. These are not the things that God's word tells me. Because God's word comes from edification, comfort, and growth, and maturity. Do you see? Those are the three things that God's word comes to do. And so if your own prophecy is coming to tell me doom and put fear in my heart, it's not consistent with the more sure word of prophecy. And Peter has released me from the fear of not believing people that are not, in, that are not consistent with God's word. So he said, even though I saw Jesus transfigured right in my face, I saw it. I'm not even lying to you. This one actually happened. This really happened. But even now, we have a more sure word of prophecy. That, that is, I am not advantaged because I was there on that mount. I don't have any advantage over you because you were not there and I was there. No, you and I now have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto we all will do good to take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and until the day star rises in our hearts by meditation. Hallelujah. And so the more I'm acquainted with the more sure word of prophecy, the more I'm equipped to be able to discern, all right, the ideal words that should come to me. So someone cannot just come to me, no matter how dramatic it seems, no matter how accurate he is in guessing my brother's name, my sister's name, and my PO box and my phone number, no matter how accurate he is in guessing those things, it does not make me confer to him the credibility that I only give to God's word. It doesn't make me confer to him any form of credibility. Anybody, any familiar spirit can do that. Have you watched prophets suddenly? Any familiar spirit that follows you around. Do you know there are familiar spirits in every domain? They've been there longer than you. They know that place more than you do. They even know your family more than you. In fact, these are the familiar spirits that keep making you curious about things you should have forgotten. They will come and remind you that you know that your grandmother used to struggle with a particular condition. The familiar spirit that will bring it into your consciousness so that it can propagate that dysfunction. The familiar spirits. <laughs> and you can banish them by just sticking with the word of God. Any familiar spirit can tell you things accurately. Any. In Crete. Paul said, even the prophets in Crete, all of them know that they are liars. Even the prophets could not stop lying. <laughs> prophets knew that if you ask for time in Crete, just know that they just lied to you. Nobody speaks the truth in Crete. And it's because a spiritual dysfunctional demonic spirit had overwhelmed that space to such an extent that God's will could no longer penetrate the hearts of people in that place. And that's why Jesus had to take a man from Bethsaida before he could heal him. And after he healed him, he said, don't go back there because you will lose the healing. There are, there are principalities and powers that after the conglomerate or the cumulative power of men give their authority to that spirit, that spirit now becomes more powerful than the men in that place. But you see, that power that that spirit has was contributed to that spirit by the men's wills. So in Ephesus, people contributed their wills to Diana. And so Diana became the god of Ephesus. And until God's word came and broke that stronghold of, of, of Diana, those people were not free. So even if you are speaking to an Ephesian person, you see, the Ephesian person could not receive the word of God. The, the, the word of God had been um, excused from their airwaves by the structures that Diana had put in place. So anybody that came to want to teach God's word, they will jail him, they will imprison him, they will beat him. Because there were systems that Diana had put in place to resist the entrance of God's word. Praise God. And that's how demonic spirits work. They try to hinder the penetration of the word of God. If you can get the word of God in your heart, you can break any demonic oppression. 
can break it, can destroy it. Just receive God's word. That's how he sent his word. He sent his word and the word went and healed them and delivered them from all their oppressions and destructions. He delivers. That's what God's word does. So any dysfunction you've met in your family does not have to light on you. It doesn't have to light on you. It doesn't. It doesn't have to drop. <laughs> so you just move along in the word of God because you are born by a higher order than just the blood of your father. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And so God's word is so powerful in aligning you with destiny. If you will just continue to read God's word, if you just continue to read God's word, you cannot miss yourself in destiny. You can't. It will just happen to you to go into the temple in one day and you will read Luke chapter 4. You will read Isaiah chapter 60 and you will just release a prophetic word into the atmosphere. And you will say today this word is released and is executed in your, in your presence. Praise the name of the Lord. It is God's word that sequences the, the timings of our destiny. It's God's word. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. You just don't stop studying God's word. All right? The alignment of destiny is at the instance of the timings that the word of God releases you into. Until the timing of his word, it couldn't be released. The word of God continued to try him. It continued to try him. So it's important that we, we relate with this word as a, 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 an entity that is real. That we can engage. That we can receive instructions and light from. The entrance of that word bring get light and understanding to the simple heart. Stop relying heavily on only teachings. Go and get revelation from God's word yourself. Go, go and get revelation. When was the last time you got revelation from God's word yourself? When was the last time you carried a basket to the word of God and you left full of revelation? When was the last time? Or you only come to church to get hyped and get pumped and you listen to teachings and you're pumped, but you have not been able to own a revelation yourself. Listen, until you own a revelation, it can't really work for you. It can't really work for you. You may be excited about the release of revelation by teaching, but until you possess it by revelation, it just, you don't own it yet. It can't work for you yet. So there is a personal call to intimacy. You've got to go for God's word yourself. You've got to go for God's, God's word yourself. So we talked about the word of God. And then last week we talked about what? Faith. Faith. If God will tell you to do something, it will, it will break every mold of your own self-assessment. What you think you can do will be challenged. The word of God will come to challenge your idea of yourself. <laughs> the will of God will come to challenge your idea of yourself. You won't look like what God's word tells you to do. You won't look like it. And your ability to say, be it unto me, that's faith. Be it unto me, according to your word, not according to my perception of my capacity, but according to your word. Because if you tell me that this is who I am, I will it and I will do it because your grace is made available to me. That's what faith does, amen. That's what faith does. And so these three metrics are so powerful in discerning and determining the will of God. And so when you begin to... Try to get into a place of discerning the will of God. Ask yourself, is this a selfish decision? If it's a selfish decision, it's not the will of God. Because it's not in alignment with love. Do I have a word for this decision? If I don't have a word, then what is governing the expression of this thing that I'm about to do? And is this thing done by faith? Because if it's not done by faith, it can't please God. That means it's not in the will. Because the will of God will please God. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
He that comes to the Father must believe that he is. And that is a reward of them that diligently seek him. So the love test, the word test, and the faith test. They are the three tripartite metrics that we use in discerning the will of God. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. So that's just a refresher from last week. First Samuel chapter 17. Today I'll be going about the teaching in a slightly different way. It's going to be an expository teaching where I'll be going verse by verse and we'll just be touching on some really amazing things that we find in 1 Samuel 17. Are you ready? 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines, all right, gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko. Not Shoko. Not Efor Shoko. <laughs> Praise God. You know, we grew up... Discerning leaves. You know how to discern leaves. There's tete, there's shoko, there is bure. <laughs> Praise God. So, they were gathered together at shoko, which belongs to Judah, and pitched between shoko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Amen. Next verse. <laughs> And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Emanuela, by the valley of Ella, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. Next verse. And the Philistines stood on one mountain on the other side, and Israel stood on another mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. So you have to picture that in your heart. So the Philistines pitched on one mountain, the Israelites pitched on the other mountain, and there was a valley in between them called the Valley of Elah. All right? And there went out, all right, from that other mountain, a champion into the camp, all right, out of the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath. Meaning giant. Praise God. Giant. And Bible says he came from Gath. And Bible says his height was six cubits and a span. Can we quickly deconstruct that into feet? So that we can have some perspective. Nine feet. Wow. That means half of the height of a six foot tall person on top of a six foot tall person. Do you see? How tall are you, Emmanuel? You're 6'4", so come. Come. So, Emmanuel is 6'4". Just to give you perspective. So, Emmanuel, you're 6'4", so let's say you're 6 foot tall. Come forward, because if we do it here, you will hit the roof. Alright, so you're 6'4", so let's say it's safe to assume that half of your height is somewhere around here. Thereabout. So, half of that, which say, uh, say about three of that. Right? On top of you. So that's this. I mean, you're almost hitting the, the ceiling. Or you would, you would conveniently pass it, right? Now imagine that height for a soldier. And there is a 17-year-old boy. Who, who, who is 17 here? Can go back to your... Can we celebrate him? Now, Goliath, Bible says, was... Six cubit, what was it? Three cubit. Is it six cubit? Six cubit, which is nine foot tall. And Bible's and a span, so there's Jara on top of it. <laughs> and then he had 
and a helmet of brass upon his head. People use brass for gates. You don't use brass for head. Head. What are you protecting? That, that's how guarded his head was. He had a helmet of brass. And the helmet of brass was upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat, that is what he wore on his body, was 5,000 shekels of brass. Another weight. Now, these shekels, all right, is a different type of metric for weights, but in kg, it's about 57 kg. Some of us here are 57 kg. I won't mention names. But if there's a 50-somebody, 50-something around you, just wave to the person. Ah, oh, I see you. I celebrate you. I know some 49 kgs. Yes. Many of them are ladies anyways. <laughs> 57 kg. He wore it as clothes. He wore 57 kg as his garment. Wow. This was a heavy man. Because for you to wear 57 kg as your garment, you must wear at least times maybe 10 of that. Because how, how, what's the weight of your cloth relative to your weight? You, you must wear perhaps times 20 of that. This was a very large man. He wore 57 kg worth of coats. The Bible says that's not the only brass in him. There is still greaves of brass upon his legs. So he entered brass. He covered his head in brass. He wore brass. And he could carry it. You have to think about it like that. He could carry it. So he had to be a weight. That is multiplied times the number of the consummate weight that he was wearing. The helmet had weight. The coat had weight. The greaves had weight. Then he had a target of brass between his shoulders. There was target of brass with, between his shoulders. Brass all the way. No singlet, brass. <laughs> not, not in cotton. What, what is cotton? Polyester. Brass. Imagine we wore brass. <laughs> How long will it take for a man to dress up? Let me bring it. And Bible says his staff. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. Because if he had that shield, so what is already carrying? I, I don't know what happened to him. So he, had, he needed some support, some, some external appendage to carry that shield for him. And the Bible said he stood. So it was designed by hell to be very intimidating. It was designed to be that oppressive. So the Bible said he stood. He stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine? Ah, you are not. You are not one. You are many. You are uh -uh, only you. Coat of mail, 57 kg, helmet of brass, greaves in your leg, brass on your shoulders. Then a man is in front of you carrying shield of brass too, perhaps. Am I not a Philistine? No, you are not. You are not one person. And ye servants to Saul, choose you a man from you and let him come down to me. Next verse. 
He said, if he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, can you go back, verse 9? If I prevail against him and I kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. Mm. Fair enough, isn't it? Fair enough. Even though you are not fair, you are not a fair person. You are too unfair. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The next verse. Wow, I defy the armies of Israel. And when Saul, the Bible says head and shoulder. So he was head and shoulder taller than everybody in Israel. So let's say he was about seven feet. So Saul is still learning beside Goliath. And this is the king of Israel who was way taller than everybody in Israel. So if Saul was not going to venture forward, nobody, nobody can try it. Nobody can dare to step forward. So when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul, that's why you are here. You are the king. You should lead the people to battle. But he sat on his throne and he was giving bounties. Uh, whoever is able to, uh, you know, fight this guy, I will give him half of my kingdom. I will give him my most beautiful daughter. I will give him. You are supposed to be the one fighting. We don't want your daughter. We want you to fight. Now David was the son of that Ephratite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. He was an old man. Jesse was an old man, advanced in age. So he was among those that was considered elders. And the three eldest sons of Jesse, all right, went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the first. The next unto him was Abinadab. And then the third was Shammah. And David was the youngest. So David was not after Shammah. David was not fourth. He was not fifth. He was not sixth. He was not seventh. He was number eight. And the top three were with Saul, following him to battles. All right? Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. And David was the youngest. And the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep because David had actually been serving Saul in helping him cast out the demons that used to visit Saul. All right? He used to come and do, you know, evening service for Saul so that he could sleep, I'm sure. But usually in the morning, he would come back, the demons are there again. So he used to go there as a service provider to to, to, to solve. So David didn't necessarily have a personal acquaintance with David yet. Saul didn't necessarily have that personal acquaintance with David yet. We would get to learn about that much later in, in the chapter. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep. Talking about the commitment of David even to the little things. So David was not the kind of guy who got a big break and forgot about his former commitments. He was not the kind of guy who became the SA to the governor or to the president and suddenly forgot that he was a school teacher in a primary school in his locale. And suddenly forgot all the children that he used to mentor. And suddenly forgot all the commitments that he had in his, in his family house. And suddenly forgot that he used to go and wash his father's car every Saturday evening. And suddenly forgot that, oh well, you know, I had commitments. Because now I'm the big boy who stays in the, in the palace of the king. That's how grounded David was. 
There was nothing you could give David that would make him lose his head. He was such a mature man at, a, at, at such a young age. Bible says David went and returned. Jesse didn't call him back. By himself, he went and returned from Saul to feed his fathership at Bethlehem. We don't know the distance between Bethlehem and the palace of the king. But this guy ventured, he went as far back to Bethlehem to feed. Hmm, to feed the sheep. And every morning, the Philistine drew near, morning and evening. So he probably had a long break because uh, he was away long enough for the battle to start and for him not to have been acquainted with the nature of the battle. So he had been away for a couple of weeks or perhaps even a month plus. And so the Philistines drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. 40 days. He kept coming, saying the exact same thing, wearying them, you know, depressing them, making them feel totally incapacitated and unable to make any move. Bible says they were dismayed and afraid. And Jesse said unto David his son, it was Jesse that triggered this destiny moment. It was Jesse's father. I, I know he doesn't have the best of PRs. I, I know we don't speak of him in the highest of lights. Because we see him as the one that intimidated David and sold him to, to die in the wilderness. But I, I, I presented Jesse in a new light this morning, really. I, I presented different Jesse this morning. The Bible says, Jesse, fathers have destiny consciousness. And only a father can push you into destiny. Only a father. Jesse looked at David and said, take now for thy brethren an ephah of this patched corn and these ten loaves and run. Wow. He didn't say go. He said run to the camp. There is something waiting on you in the camp. He is sensed it that this is a destiny moment. This is what your life has been about. But it is dependent on your obedience to me as your father. There are some fathers that you think their own is too much. But without them you can't rise. You just cannot rise. There is a reason why they are unreasonable. There is a reason why you can't negotiate with them. There is a reason. There is a reason why you can't tell your father that I will go in the evening. You will miss Goliath. There is a reason why you cannot negotiate the next day with them. Because if Jesus speaks, he doesn't advise. Like Captain said, he's commanding. And David understood that. And so the moment Jason looked at his son and said, go, run to the camp. Carry this ten cheese unto the captain of their thousand. And look at the sense of understanding that Jesse had. Jesse was a very solid man of understanding. He understood hierarchy. He understood honor. He understood how to serve relationships. And so he didn't just serve. He didn't send um, parchment and resources and provisions to his sons alone. He said, look for the captain. Look for the captain of their thousand. That is the captain of their battalion where they, where they belonged. Give them ten cheeses. Ah. He understood protocol. Don't just go straight and go and sort your brothers and move on. No. Where, where is the captain of their thousands? Before I even go to my brothers, let me sort the ogre first. Understanding. Some of you have never given your boss anything. You have never. You have never said, we know he owes you a salary. He's not, he's not blessing you. <laughs> your salary is not a blessing. He's, he's a wage. But hey, he's serving a role that God placed him over you to serve. And you must understand that. Never giving him anything. Never. After all, he's an indiscriminate, unreasonable person. David's father understood that the head of his sons played a crucial role in their lives. 
And even when he was sending their provisions, he added the provision of his children's boss. And he said, give them 10 cheeses. Give them 10 cheeses unto their captain. And look how their brethren, your brethren fare and take their pledge. So ask from them what they would like. Apart from the things you give to them, ask from them what they would like because they've been there for a couple of weeks now fighting, even though they were not fighting. <laughs> they were just chilling and getting afraid. <laughs> They were not doing any fights, but the father was reasonable enough to want to serve their needs. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah. This truth. Fighting with the Philistines. Is that what is happening? That, that, that's the picture of what is happening. <laughs> that's the idea that Jesse had. <laughs> that your, your brethren, they are fighting. But we know that for 40 days, only one man was talking. Everybody was getting afraid. And David rose up what? Early. If he doesn't rise up early, he misses Goliath. There is a sense of urgency that a father would infuse into your spirit. Bible says he told David, go, run to the camp. And Bible says the next morning, he rose up early in the morning. And left the ship with the keeper. So he didn't abdicate his responsibilities. That's the sense of understanding that David had. He didn't abdicate his responsibilities. He left the ship with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had what? Mm -hmm. As Jesse had commanded. And he came to the trenches. <laughs> and he came to the trenches <laughs> as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and Philistines have put the battle in array. What are you arraying? For the past 40 days, you have been putting it in array. <laughs> Go and fight if you can fight. Which one is you are putting it in array? You are arranging and arranging and setting the battle in array for 40 days. You are too afraid to fight. You know people that they will arrange to fight for 10 minutes. If you can fight, just fight. Say, collect my shirt. Collect my wristwatch. Collect my belt. Collect my shoe. You cannot fight. I'm waiting for someone to come and separate the fight. If you can fight, give the guy blow. Let's know that there is blood already. This is a collect, collect. Remove my ear. Wait. Take it. Oga. Stop putting the battle in array. Go and fight. If you can fight, oh. Except you can't fight. Because from this part of the world, we Yoruba people, our mouth goes ahead of us. He won't me. Mon boy. I'm coming. What? I'm here. Come and fight with me. Why are you going to come back? Why? <laughs> For Israel and Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. That's the same thing we've been hearing for the past 40 days. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran. A sense of urgency. He ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. Saluted them, respected them, gave them their wages saluted them and he talked with them and behold there came up the champion the philistine of god goliath by name out of the armies of the philistines and spake according to the same words and david heard him before i go too far there are some things you will never handle in destiny if you are not given to service there are just some things you will never handle if you are not serving your father's house you're not serving a shepherd context you're not serving your brothers look at how many people david has served here he has served his father he has served the the, the, the sheep he has served his brothers he has served the boss of the brothers everywhere david went he was always looking for how to serve how to serve 
But we are a generation that we go everywhere looking for who to serve us. Their, their, their service is not even nice in this place. Their chairs are not even nice in this place. Their car is not even nice. This train is not even nice. This, can we look for how to serve? Because the one serving is the one with value. That's the one that has value to give and dispense. That's the, that's the higher concentration that is flowing down here. Glory to God. David was a man of service. He was a man of love. Because you can't be a man of service without being a man of love. He was a man of love. So we see and we can establish in the life of David that he was a man of so much love was in his heart. You know, there are several things David could have been feeling depressed about. The fact that he seemed alienated from his brothers and all those things, he could have felt very downcast by these things. His brothers actually bullied him almost all the time. They even bullied him here. But he saluted them. He didn't take it personal. He saluted them. He served them. He was a blessing to them. He looked out for them. He went to serve his father's sheep in the wilderness. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. I thought they said you were fighting. They fled from him and were so afraid. That's all you've been in the last 40 days. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy the... To defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who killed him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. Why this much reward? Sometimes the higher the reward, the more irresponsible the king. Because hmm. why, why, why are you putting so much reward? Why are you incentivizing the person that will go and kill himself? Because nobody can kill you like that. You can't kill yourself. That's what you're going to do. Because you, you didn't want to risk. You didn't want to sacrifice. You, you were going to be the king that was going to be doling out. That's not inspirational leadership. Imagine there was something to do and I'm just pushing everybody. Go forward. Go forward. The coast clear. Yeah. Whoever finishes first, I'll tell him, send you to Dubai. I'll send you to Dubai. Just go and check if the waters or the coast is clear. And this coast can kill. And David spake to the man and stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine? And take it away the reproach from Israel. Look at the perspective of David. David saw this as a challenge against God. Who will, what will be done to the man who, I think you jumped a verse. What will be done to a man who comes to take away the reproach from Israel? So he saw this as a reproach to Israel. He didn't, this was not a personal battle for fame. This was not an attempt to be popular. This was not an attempt to be seen and glorified as some big boy, star boy. No, he was looking out for the glory of the Father. He had seen Israel being defied. That Israel, are you kidding me? Israel, you defy the armies of Israel. You bring reproach to, to Jerusalem. Who is this person that is defying the armies of Israel? They wanted to understand the stakes. And he asked, what will be done to the person that kills this Philistine? And take it. Take away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Next verse. And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. Next verse. All right. And Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spake unto the men. So he obviously didn't ask his brothers because they were not going to answer him. They were going to bully him and insult him and make jest of him and stuff like that. And so he didn't bother asking them. So he asked other people who he felt were a bit more objective. And then Eliab overheard that conversation and he, he, his anger was kindled against, if you can fight, you can be angry. Well, what, 
fight, don't be angry. You cannot fight. Somebody is asking questions about the fight and potentially engage the Philistine that you all have been afraid of for the past 40 days and you are angry. Funny how the people who you've been sent to deliver don't appreciate you. The people you've been sent to go and rescue will not see you in the capacity of the rescuer. Only if he had come with a great white horse and with, you know, some shields and armor and slings on a throne and stuff like that. Maybe they'll pave the way and start hailing their savior. But he came with shepherd clothes and, you know, with patched corn and cheese and stuff as an errand boy. And sometimes the savior is wearing patched clothes. The savior is not looking like the savior. Sometimes the savior is the one who looks like the servant. Who, who has his guard, you know, who had guarded himself with, with a... Servant linen. Remember what Jesus did in John chapter 13. How that he, he left his priestly garment and took upon himself a servant robe. And then he guarded himself and began to serve and began to wash his disciples' feet. Service is the pathway to glory. And that is only something that can be done by lovers. Only lovers can exalt the need to serve another over themselves. Because while you are serving, you have placed yourself under. But God is seeing you as the one above. Because he said, he that will rise, let him serve. So whenever you are serving, God is seeing the greater person. But you have to assume the role of the lesser one to serve. Do you understand the dynamic? Before you can serve, you have to believe that people are better than you. You have to believe that nobody should come to church and have a dirty restroom. So let me go and serve them so that they don't have to use a dirty restroom. So that they don't have to be in a, a dirty church. So I'm serving them. But while you are serving, God is seeing the greater one doing that. Only the great will serve. The proof of greatness is service. It's not the path to greatness. It's the proof of it. Uh, you know, people have said, oh, if you want to be great, serve. That's a wrong motivation. You are not really serving because you love. You are serving because you want to be great. It's still selfish. This is why it's possible to give your body to be burned and still not love. Because you want to give your body to be burned so that it can be said of you that you are a giver. That is not love still. You must genuinely indeed believe that people deserve to be served. And then you go in that strength and passion. And that's how God sees you for the credit that you really deserve. And Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why comest thou hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep? As if you really care about the few sheep. As if you really care. The guy that cares has sorted them out. He put them in the hands of the keeper. He preserved them. He goes back to teach them and to share with them and to serve them and to provide for them from time to time. He cares about them. But suddenly, those sheep have become important because you see him as a threat to your emergence. You see him as someone who has come to take the shine. You know this guy's anointed. You know this guy's anointed. Oh, these guys knew that David is anointed. Remember, he had been anointed before now. Samuel already visited the house of Jesse. David is already anointed. So these guys know that whenever he comes on the scene, something is about to happen. They knew, and they knew that this guy, there is something, they, they wanted to be malicious against them. Why are you here? What is your business? Because we know that once you come, everybody else becomes secondary. You, you are about to take the spotlight. He was coming to serve genuinely, but they felt threatened. Hmm. And why camest down to there? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride. You are the one proud, sir. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart. For thou hast come down that thou mightest see the battle. Is there anything wrong with that? All of you have been seen. 
You've all been gazing and looking and observing the, the brass and the coat of mail and the greaves and the nine foot tall Goliath. So why can't I also come and watch? It's just one additional watchman that will be added. No, no big deal. I mean, you are not really fighting. My life is not at risk. <laughs> you are all just watching. And David said, what have I now done? I, is there not a cause? Do you live your life on the strength of this understanding that there is a reason for everything? There is a reason for everything. Every delay has a reason. Every, every assignment has a reason. Every queue, every traffic has a reason. There is a cause. I'm telling you the truth. I had a moment recently, you know, something happened to my phone and it was a very big deal, quote unquote, in the sense that it disorganized my entire week and all that. And then I went to the ICM and I was trying to get a replacement and there were issues and I, have to, I had to come back the next day and I was spending three, four hours at the mall and I just had a conversation with a friend the day before telling them about how important it is to just be thankful in every situation, even when they are not convenient. How that you shouldn't complain. I just said, I just given that charge. I just given that charge the day before. So the very next day, the test to prove what I said yesterday came to prove me that indeed, are you going to stay joyful and joyful and excited and praising? And so that moment, I, I remembered my charge. I said, ah, but why is it me? Because that particular situation, that particular situation happens maybe once in 1,000. Why is it my own time when I went to buy this phone? Why is it that time that this phone now chose to have this, type, this particular dysfunction? So I went back to the center and I'd been there. They were resetting and resetting and all that. And I remember that charge and I said, you know what? I'll give thanks. And then I think there was no network in that place. Then I just stepped out and I was just going towards an exit door so that I could have some reception. And then I stumbled on this great general of faith. And I stumbled on this great general of faith. And I was like, sir. I mean, I was too overwhelmed. I was like, sir, good afternoon, sir. And he looks at me and he says, I know you. I said, hey. No, sir, I know you, sir. <laughs> I know you. He said, no, I know you. I, I stumbled on your, on your page on Instagram, and boy, I was so blessed. That was, you know, he kept talking up. I said, sir, uh, okay. I was too overwhelmed, and for the next 30 minutes, he was with the family, his wife, and his daughter was there. For the next 30 minutes, he just kept sharing so many powerful things. Solid apostolic sessions in 30 minutes at the ICM. And after 30 minutes, you know, he said, I would like us to hang out and all that. And then took out his phone and he took a video selfie. I was like, eh? And then before I left, he prayed for me. And he released the blessing upon my life. I was like, oh, I see why. There is a cause. If you stay sulky in difficult and convenient situations, you will lose the glory that God is setting you up to receive. You will lose it. You, you, your eyes will be too blurry to see. Joy enlightens your eyes. It's like the thing that enlightens the eye. Remember how Jonathan took something and his eyes were open. It was enlightened. And he was the only one that saw it. Saul had banned every one of the soldiers from taking anything. But Jonathan ate it and his eyes were open. And that was what prosecuted that victory that day. It was because Jonathan ate something. There is a, there is a certain enlightenment that joy brings into your life. It lightens your countenance. And even in bad situations, dark situations, never lose your joy. Never lose your thanksgiving. Never lose your attitude of gratitude. Never lose it. Because right in that moment, God will be orchestrating something. While you are bringing your son on one side of the mountain, God is bringing a ram to the other side. You didn't see it, but once you get to the top, you will meet each other. But while you are carrying down your son to that mountain, complaining and complaining, you are losing speed. There is a ram caught in the ticket. 
But you didn't see that realm. You just had to trust that God, is, God has something he's doing. God will provide. Your perspective, even in difficult situations, has to be that of gratitude. In all things, give thanks. I will give 10 phones for that moment. For that moment I received, I will give 10 phones. Because you can't quantify grace. No, you can't. Abraham gave all he had to concubines and their children. Then he carried Isaac. And he dispensed everything he had. He released it over his life. He emptied himself to Isaac. But there was no transfer of, of balances. There was no transfer of money. There was no change of COO. There was nothing in the flesh that entered into Isaac's life. After that moment. But there was grace transfer. There was a blessing transfer. But you check all the concubines and their children, you see alerts. You see COO. You see exchange of documents. You see cars. You see keys. You see all those things. And they were the ones feeling more blessed. But Isaac got everything and more. Because you can't quantify the blessing. David looked at him and said, see, there is a reason. Jesse triggered a prophetic moment in my life and destiny. And I ran at the sense of urgency, understanding that, see, there is a reason my father has triggered me to come to the camp at this point. There are some things that only father can instigate and initiate. Only fathers. The other day I was speaking to Pastor Maureen, and, you know, it was such a blessed moment at our home. And then she said that only fathers can circumcise. Ah. And that touched my heart. Only fathers can circumcise. Only fathers can separate you from the beggarly elements of your desires and flesh. Only fathers. Only fathers can push you into destiny. And in that moment, you may think that they are being mean and all that, but that's the only way you enter into destiny. In retrospect, you would always give thanks for the kind of fathers that he has given unto you. And he turned from, the, from him towards another. So he told, respectfully, what, what did I do now? Isn't there a reason why I'm here? Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason why you're working in Lagos? Is there not a reason why you have that person sitting beside you at the office? Is there not a reason why you are neighbors to that person in your, in your house? Is there not a reason why you're traveling to France this week? Amen. Is there not a reason? Is there not a, there is a reason. There is a reason. There is a cause. For the believer who, whose life is inched on the path of destiny, who is praying every day, who is following the will of God, who is walking in love, who is reading his Bible, who is praying, who is walking by faith, nothing is a mistake in his life. Nothing. Everything is working together. Everything. There is a cause. Would you have thought that God set up that battle just for David? Can you imagine? Eliab. Abinadab, Shama, they went to go and train, went to the school of militia, they trained for five years, they joined Saul in his army, just to set up the stage nicely for the 17-year-old anointed David. 40 days! They were talking back and forth. Everything was orchestrated for that moment. David was the most important person in that event, but he was the last to come. <laughs> Everybody had been set up. You see, God is the one that understands the script. He understands this better than the people in the movie. So while everybody was thinking that they were about to fight Goliath, we're about to defeat Goliath, God understands I'm about to set up the stage nicely for David. I'm about to announce David. I'm about to announce David. Oh, dear God. God is so masterful in the way he orchestrates the, 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 the nuances and the orchestrations of your life. He's so masterful. Boy, if you complain, you will miss out. You will miss out because if you start complaining, you won't see the downcast face of the bottle and the baker. You won't see it. If you start complaining in jail, you will not see opportunities. You need to banish complaining and sulking from your experience and from your reality. 
as believers. Amen and amen. Glory to God. I could stay there for a while, but let's move on. And he turned from him towards another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after this, the former manner. The next verse, quickly. And when the words were heard, which David spake, they rehearsed, it, them, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. So Saul sent for David. And David said unto Saul, let no man's heart fail. I like that. I like that. That in the battle of life, it's not your hands that need to be strengthened. It's your heart. They were carrying swords and spears and arrows, but their hearts had failed. If your heart will fail, your hands cannot get you victory. If your heart will fail, there is nothing your hands can do. And so the first thing God will do with you is to strengthen your heart. Is to encourage your heart. Is to edify your spirit man. Is to give you gusto in your, in your work, in your swag. There, there has to be courage entering into your spirit. Say, so let no heart fail, please. That's inspirational leadership. Let no person's heart fail because of him. This guy is small. I mean, see perspective. Everybody is getting afraid. And this 17-year-old boy who has never fought a battle, quote-unquote, in his life, he comes to the scene and he says, why are you guys afraid of this guy? Like, who are you? Like, you are supposed to be afraid of him. He's impressive. He's intimidating. Do you want him to kill you? Like, this guy can eat you up. He said, why are you afraid of him? Let no man's heart fail him. Life is lived from the heart. Life is lived from the heart. It is how you face life with your heart that determines what life will give back to you. It is your heart that determines what will enter into your hands. If your hearts fail, your hands will fail. The Bible says, thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Have you read the terms and conditions? I've read it. Do you know what is at stake? I know. Do you know you could be killed? <laughs> no, sir. I, I can't be killed. I, I know what's at stake. I'll kill him. Hey, God, what kind of a person is this? And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. You are a youth, for he has been a man of war from his youth. But look at David's response you don't show maturity by age. David does not begin to argue with Saul. Ah, I'm old, though. I'm not a youth anymore. It is your experience that validates your maturity. So David did not go on the strength of, I'm not a youth, I'm a youth. He said, don't worry. He said, I'm a youth, Abby. Wait, wait to hear my experiences. Then you realize how mature I am. He says, ah, I, I, I understand your reservation, sir. But thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear. Have you met a lion before, sir? Uh, a bear, a bear. Polar bear, sir. <laughs> A beer, and, and they took a lamb. See the heart of David again. His love, all right? They took a lamb, and they didn't take me. It was not me. I, I could be spared. I didn't have to, you know, to try and rescue the lamb. I, they didn't come for me because they're not born them. You understand? They, they didn't come for me. They went for a lamb. The, the, the less privileged, the, the vulnerable in the society, the downtrodden, the ones that cannot take care of themselves. Because that, those are the things that should characterize your shepherd context. You shouldn't be serving people who can serve themselves. Go for people who cannot be there for themselves. People that cannot serve themselves. People that if you are not there, they will be dead. People that if you are not there, they won't be in school. If, they were not, if you were not there, they won't have anyone to call shepherd and so when anything threatens them you take it personal 
That's love. That's what Jesus did with us. And he said, the, the previous verse. And they took a lamb out of the flock that I watched over. <laughs> they tried me. The next verse. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered out of his mouth. And I didn't want to kill him, honestly. I just delivered, bang, bang, call me. Just give me my thing. Collected my lamb and dropped it. And then he rose against me. Hey, I, you should have just given me my property and we go our separate ways. But then you wanted to now get me and the lamb. <laughs> so he rose against me and I caught him by the beard. And I smote it and slew him. The next verse. And thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just as one of them. I've seen this repeated over and over and over again. This is a simulation of what I've been in consistently. I know exactly what to do. I'll get him out. It's not even going to be a long battle, to be honest. 40 days, uh, you guys, I don't know what you've been waiting for. I'll deal with this guy in, in a... And thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised, because how I rate people is by their circumcision. That is how I rate men. I don't rate men based on stature, money, car, mm -mm. Are you circumcised or uncircumcised? Those are the only two people we have in the world. The circumcised and the uncircumcised. And you are the circumcision. That worships God in the spirit, rejoices, all right, in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. And David looked at him, is he circumcised? He's not. Uh -uh, small thing. And he looked at him and he said, this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them. A man that is uncircumcised is not any better than an animal. That is what David said here. And that is what the Bible also teaches. He said, before you got saved, you were not a people. But what were you if you were not a people? It is God that dignifies humanity. It's God. If a man does not have God, he's not better than a lion or a bear. I have reduced his status eternally to that of an animal because he doesn't know God. You stand and you defy the armies of the living God. That you shall be like, it won't even be any more complex. Hi. That is what I will go through to deal with you may even be cheaper to achieve. Than what, shall be, I went, I did a lot to, 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 to smite, to tear, to deliver. You'll, you'll soon see now. How he got this guy dealt with. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. This is where the Victoria Renze song comes in, you know. David has backing, the, 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 the tribe of Israel has backing, and then somebody comes to Dojuko, the tribe of Israel, and he didn't realize that they have backing. And then he goes as far as defying. Defi you know, that, that, that is... That is a bit too risky. Why would you defy? You can challenge, but don't defy. Don't defy. Don't berate God. Don't discount him and dismiss him and say he's nothing. He can't do anything. You defy the people that he has his backing behind. And David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the, the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with you. You see that I didn't bring about the issue of youth again. Because what matures you is your experience. Your experience in warfare is what matures you. So you're a 24-year-old boy, but you have handled the things that 50-year-olds have not handled. You are a 50-year-old man now. You can handle the things that they should be handling. 
And so when Saul heard the experience of David, he realized that not even many people in his militia have had the same experience. So he knows immediately that this guy is older than everybody here combined. He said, the Lord be with you. Your experience is what validates. And listen, Goliath cannot be the first thing on your CV. It cannot be the first thing on your CV. You don't start your CV with Goliath. God will never allow it. So he will prep you at other caves and wildernesses with other smaller elements that will give you a microcosm of the challenge that Goliath will pose. You can't start your CV with Goliath. If I ask you now, what are the things you've done for God? You have been asking for Mike all these years, but you've not done any little thing in a children's church. You've not done anything in a fellowship. You've not done anything in a cell. But you're asking for a mic on a big stage. Goliath cannot be the first thing on your CV. So when the person who will give you the platform for Goliath shows up, he will ask you for the things you have done with the lion and the bear. Goliath cannot be the first thing you are showing. Because Goliath does not exist until you have dealt with the lion and the bears. He's, he's a next level. Do you understand? Goliath is not a first level. He's a next level. So if you have not dealt with the lower level of faithfulness, if you've not been faithful in little, Bible says who? Even the devil will not attempt it. Who will commit to you greater things, bigger responsibilities? You grow from the ground up. You don't jump up. Pastor Ewa mentioned it. You don't jump up. You will come down. You don't climb up. You can come down. But when you grow up, you stay up. And Saul armed David with his armor. And he put a helmet of brass upon his head. So he wanted to match the energy of Goliath. Even if he matches the energy of Goliath, you can't match the height of Goliath. You can't match the size of Goliath. You can't match the experience of Goliath. So you don't match the energy of the adversary. You go on a different plane entirely. You come different from what he's expecting. Hi. You don't match the energy of the adversary. And so Saul wanted to arm David the way he would have armed someone who is going to fight in the stead of himself, all right, against Goliath. And Saul armed David with his own armor and put his helmet of brass upon his head and also armed him with a coat of mail. He just did everything that Goliath was doing. So everything that Goliath had, he wanted to replicate it for David. And David guarded his sword upon his armor and he has said, he wanted to go. Eh, 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 eh. <laughs> Sorry, I can't try this one. I'm yet to prove them. I don't use things like this. The weapons of my warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings to the captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And David said unto Saul, and I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. I don't need these ones. I know where I go to for my victory. I know where I go to. So he went to a brook. Next thing. And he took his staff. There's so much to share here. He took his staff in his hands and chose five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag which he had even in a scrip and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistines. Three S's that I will share with you here quickly, quickly think three things you need to understand. So four, I mean three things that David showed here. The first thing he had with him was a staff. The second thing he had were, were what stones and the last thing he had was a sling and he put them all in a shepherd's bag which was like a scrip. Interesting, they are all S's. The first thing is a staff, which is representative of relationships in your life. You must learn to manage relationships because staffs are to be leaned on. You must have people you can lean on. And it is, a, it is dependent on your attitude and your relationship management skills, which is a direct function of your character. If you don't have a good character, many people will not stay around you for a long time. You won't have relationships for so long. 
You won't have long-term relationships. And so you need to develop a character that helps, keeps, and consolidates relationships around you. So David had his staff, his relationships, all right? And then he had his stones. Look at that. He had his stones. Your stones are your talents and your gifts and your skills. Things you have honed for several years. Things that you have handy. Praise the name of the Lord. Let's check out the... Quickly, ah, praise the name of the Lord. Are we still together, guys? Let's check out... 1 Samuel chapter 16. Glory to Jesus. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. And you see the five stones of David. There are five stones too. Five stones of David, verse 18. And then answered one of the servants, all right, and said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. It's interesting how that David never featured in almost any context before he actually became a man of himself without the reference of his father. I have seen David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. That is cunning in playing, number one, the first stone. Number two, he was valiant. He was a valiant man. He had courage. He had that level of courage and boldness and audacity. Then he was a man of war. He was skilled in battle. Then he was prudent in matters. He knew how to speak. He knew how to, he knew how to understand. He understood people. He knew how to manage affairs. He knew how to speak. He had, he had discretion. Jonas, he was prudent in matters. He could manage affairs. And then he was a handsome man. He was a comely person. The last one is not a stone because it's the bag. Bible says that the Lord is with him. You put all your stones inside the bag. And so the stones are the skill sets, the things that you have developed over the years. God wants to do a lot of supernatural things in your life, but he needs a stone. He needs a stone. The stone will not deliver the breakthrough, but it will be used by God to deliver the breakthrough. But by the time you see what the stone did, you realize that it was more than the stone. You realize that it was not just the stone. But your stone is required. So if I ask you for your stone, let me see your bag. What's inside it? There's no stone in there. So you're just a, you're just a, a prayer warrior. You, you, you pray. All you do is you just pray. You pray a lot. What is inside your bag? I can't find stones there. No skills. Data analytics, nothing. Microsoft is Word. It's just Word. Microsoft Word. That's the only one. You know, can, can you manage people? Can you... Can you, can, you, can you create a dashboard? Can you use Excel? Skills. Can you code? All right? Can you design an interface? Praise God. Can you, can, you, can you mine data and structure them in an intelligent way that can be presented and insight can be gleaned for decision making for corporate level executives? Can you do those things? Can you make life easy for someone? This was the recommendation that brought David to the palace in the first place. His stones. What are your stones today? Can you count up to five? If you don't have up to five, you are still learning. Oh. You are still learning. And so you need to understand that David had at least five skills that he could deploy at any point. And sometimes the level of leadership you'll be entering into will require the multiplied consummation of all your five stones. Because look at Joseph. He needed all the stones he could muster to become the prime minister. As David, as the king of Israel, you need all the stones. Look at all these things. He needed it in, in kingship. So there are some areas that it's just one stone that's required that sometimes you need all the five stones to work. But it's still not the five stones that are delivering the victory for you. It, was, it is God's hand upon the stones. Praise the name of the Lord. So you need your staff to lean on, relationships. You need your skills to deploy. I need your sling. Your slings are opportunities and platforms. They don't come every time. What they do is to project your stones. 
you've got to be sensitive to opportunities and platforms. You've got to be sensitive in moments. There are seasons that God will just stage it. So that moment in destiny for David was a sling. That, that day in the valley of Elah, that was a sling to project David into the canons of history. Such that the women of Israel will start singing, oh, Saul killed his thousands, but David has killed his 10,000. It will become a global phenomenon. God saw that day. Sometimes social media is our sling. Sometimes a board meeting is our sling. Sometimes a pitch is our sling. Something that will project. Your hand cannot throw the stone as far. You need a sling that will project it. It's a platform. It's an opportunity. It's, it's a presentation. Almost like a day, an audition. Many of the actresses that we celebrate today, many of them did not plan for the audition. They just went, but they had been prepared over time. Then the person that was supposed to take a role was not there. Then they said, ah, who can act here? And so they just showed up. They said, let me try. That's how they became superstars. But they had been prepared for that moment. You don't prepare for Goliath at the Valley of Ella. No, no. So every time you jump and pass every opportunity to develop skills and develop capacity, you are just making yourself too weak for Goliath by the time you see him. Because Goliath is coming. But instead of you slaying him, you'll be just as afraid as every other person in the valley. Because you are not taking advantage of the opportunities God has placed in front of you. And Philistines came on and drew near. You understand what I'm saying here? So he carried all those five stones. Where did he put it? In a script, in a shepherd's bag. And that's the fact that God is with you. He makes everything make sense. He presents you the opportunities. He helps you refine your skills. He brings the people around you. That's the container that houses every of your anointings and all your giftings. And the Philistines came on and drew near unto David. And the man bare the shield, went before him. Next verse. Quickly, quickly, quickly. And then when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. And there's an arrogance about the devil. There's an arrogance. If, if you observe Goliath enough, you realize that it, it is an error a lot of big blue chip companies still make till today. You are so big, you are no longer nimble. You are no longer agile. You are no longer iterative. You can't make changes quick, quickly. You can't, you can't adapt. You are too big to bend. You are too big to stoop. You can't run. You can't, you can't move. You, you, you need somebody to carry your shield. Why do you need so? Is it the person that will be shot at? Why is somebody else carrying your shield? It's just too big. You can't carry it yourself. So you need somebody else to carry your shield, and then you, are, you just want to intimidate people, but you really don't have intelligence. That's the problem. Goliath is not smart. He's not a very smart person. Because imagine David runs under his. There's a word coming to my mind. That's the word. I will not say it. You know, when we are playing four by four. Don't worry, Pings, don't worry. Because <laughs> Pings trying to understand. So imagine David just runs under him and goes behind him. How long will it take for Goliath to go back and say, Where are you? He's, he's slain already. He's, he wasn't so smart. If he was smart, he would have waited for Israel to send a man and then look for a profile that suits David. Not go and expose all his weaknesses and then... Israel has 40 days to deploy a weapon that can destroy him in minutes. And that's what he did. He allowed God and Israel and David understudy him, analyze him, and then they created a prototype in David. Say, this is what we need. And God released David. And in minutes, Goliath was down. He was dead. Go read Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. You understand what I'm saying? Goliath was actually the one that was disadvantaged in this battle. <laughs> if you just allow the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened, you realize that those blue chip companies, you can destroy them from the corner of your room. What happened to all of these massive companies? It was just a boy coding in his father's garage. 
And they said, uh, what is he doing? Nothing. I mean, we've been market leaders for the past 30 years. There's nothing that can happen. Nothing can happen. Nothing can happen. And overnight, disruptions happen. Goliath is too, is too weak. He's too, he's too dense. He's like, he has settled like Ogi. He cannot be moved. He can't be steered. That I don't touch unclean things. And God is releasing a new guy that is nimble, that is iterative, that uses agile methodology, and he's moving at his speed. And you, you are still there. Bureaucracy has, has grounded the entire process in the organization. I hope you are receiving insight here. And when, we, and, and when Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. The way Kodak disdained the guy that brought about Canon. <laughs> disdained him, and, for he was but a youth and ruddy. That I'm fine does not mean I'm not wise. Do you understand? That you don't always have to associate being fine and ruddy with being naive and innocent. Some of us are fine and ruddy, but there is strength of age on our side. There is ancience, <laughs> for a lack of a better word. That is, there's ancience. Do you understand that? We, we, we stay and live with the ancient of days. But, for, but you've been a youth and you're ruddy and of a fair countenance. Like it, looked, it looked so innocuous. It looked so harmless. Like, David, let me give you biscuits. What's wrong with you? Go, go and play. Like, what's, what's, this? what's your problem? You want to come and die? No, no, no. Just go and play. Take. Just go. Like, it looked too harmless. You know, one of the global voices, well, should I say, in Africa, regarding events, some of the challenges she faced, starting out was the fact that she was really young, and so people wanted a very impressive older lady, so whenever she comes into the room, they're like, go and bring your boss. (laughs) Like, you can't be this young. Like, I want to talk to your guy. And he's like, this is me. I'm the one in charge of this events planning company and they're like no 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 and it was a big deal for a lot of people because traditional people are like no no there's somebody behind you that is bigger than you just traditional thinking and philistine said to david am i am i a dog what kind of insult is this for 40 days i was telling you guys to prepare somebody and this is what you present am i a dog that thou comest to me with staves and with, with shepherd bag and stones and and, and stuff oh, come on now and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The next verse, quickly. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Thank you for reciting your own, uh, what do we call that now? Right? He, he was telling David how David should kill him. And then David said unto the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear. Your weapons of war are carnal, all right? You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand. I won't waste any more day in this valley. I'm not here to come and be spending 40 days. I will smite thee and I will take thy head from thee and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. He had some boldness that trumped his age. What kind of a boy is this? How are you talking like this? How are you able to talk like this? You have spent time. You must have spent time in the word of God. You must have spent time reading about how God delivered the children of Israel from the hands of Pharaoh and Egyptians. And how he helped them walk through, you know, the wilderness. How he parted the Red Sea. Because only God's word can give this kind of boldness. You don't hear this kind of boldness talking to people on Facebook, on social media, or talking to friends. Only God's word can produce this kind of boldness and audacity. I will smite thee and I will take thine head from thee. Are you, are you, this guy can eat your head up. But he said, I will smite you. I will take your head from you. I will give you to the carcasses of the, and the host of the Philistines to the fowls of the air. He was not talking like his stature. 
He was not talking like himself. He was talking in the capacity of the God that Goliath had defied. You, there, there, there is a way you must talk that people should doubt your age. There is a way you must talk that people should not be able to believe your real age. Because you are speaking in the capacity of the ancient of days. Because there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the almighty. Give it them understanding. There is a way you must speak. And to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. The next verse quickly. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and with spear. God set up the stage so nicely for David. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hands. You see the humility of David. You see, you see, you see, you see humility in boldness. You see boldness in humility. You see the difference between arrogance and humility here now. Arrogance is putting all of that confidence in the flesh. Humility still has confidence. But it's not putting the confidence in the flesh. It's putting it in the spirit. So David and Goliath said pretty much the same things. But Goliath had all of that strength in himself and in his gods who are not worth serving. But David looked at all of that. He said all of that and he put all that confidence in the Lord. I come in the name of the Lord. Except God can be defeated. That I can be defeated. Except God can be defeated. I put my confidence in the Lord. The battle is not mine. The battle is the Lord's. And the Bible says it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David. So, you know, imagine how he was drawing near. But look at what David, the Bible said, David hasted and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. Let's get this thing over with quickly, quickly. Let's not even be matching each other's energy with your small, small steps. As Goliath was coming one step after the, the other one, David ran and hasted. And the Bible says, David put his, oh dear God, see the skill. He was on the run, oh. Do you understand? He had not taken the stone. He was running, and while he was running, he put his hand in the script. And he put out a stone and put in a sling while running. How, how much time do you have to practice this thing to get to that level of skill and, and refinement? That while you are running at top speed, you are putting your hand and you are cocking the gun and you are, you are setting it up nicely. You put it in the sling and you on, on the speed. While you are running, how skilled must David have been? There is, there is use to your skill. Do you realize? Imagine if David couldn't do this. Imagine if David... God couldn't rely on David's skill to lay on it. Your skill will be released as a stone. But you must have it. You must have that skill. You must. David was running. And while running, he located a stone in the script. He took it out. He put it in a sling. And he calculated the angle of elevation. While running. Because that thing could have gone anywhere in the world. Uh, a stone. People are spending two, two hours targeting you while running. And you still get the forehead. That's some skill. That's some dexterity. This guy did this thing every day. You're not ready yet if you're not doing it every day. You're not ready yet. Say, I want to become the number one person in, this, in the next three years. Go and check what their routines are. Those people that are number one already... I check their routines. You see that you, you actually need like 40 years. <laughs> because at this rate of you're doing it all, and by that 40 years, the disruption would have taken up, <laughs> the skill set would have arrived at. <laughs> so there is a level of daily discipline that is required. Look at that. David put his hand in the back while running and took this stone and slung it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. And this is the supernatural bit. How does a stone that is moving in this speed 
enter into a helmet of brass. Because remember, this guy doesn't just have his head waiting to be shot at. This guy has helmet of brass on his head. This helmet has thickness and resistance. This is stone we are talking about. They are not made in terms of the quality of material. They are not made. This is not diamond. This is not gold. This is stone compared to brass. And stone sank into helmet. Helmet and entered into the forehead. And Bible said it didn't hit him. It sank into his forehead. And to just show the power of the Godhead, it didn't fall backwards. Because if I hit you with such a force that enters into your head, there is only one way to go. There is only one way to go. You watch movies all the time. You don't get shot and then go forward. Except you are shot at the back. You can't be shot in front and then go forward. You go backwards because that's the force of the speed of that bullet. And imagine the force of the speed of a bullet that can enter into the helmet of a person and sink into his head and this guy still falls face down. What do you think that is about? His worship. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. At the end of the day, God must get all the glory. And so Goliath bowed down to the God he had been defying. Because you don't, you don't go this way. You must come and double him. You defy me to my faces. You defy my armies. And the Bible says in one moment of grace, one moment, one sling of a stone, David prevailed over the Philistine that the children of Israel for 40 years or 40 days had been arraigned and arraigned and arraigned to fight. There is an executive strength of children of God. Don't overanalyze. There are things I want to tell you to do. Stop overanalyzing for 40 days and arraign your battle and arraign your battle. Can you get on that stage and do something by the Spirit? Because how David was going to move there, it was a word that came into his heart. Because there are a number of things he could have done. He could have gotten an arrow. There are a number of things he could have done. There are several things David knows how to do. He was a man of war. He didn't know how to win battles only by one, one means or method. But in that moment that he could no longer use the coat of mail and the shield and all the things that Saul was giving to him, he relied on the word of the Spirit. He was relying on the hearing of faith. And God said, go to that brook. Pick out five stones. Put it in your script. All right? Run at him. And then you sling it. That was the word. And that was the word that the supernatural had to lay on. Remember we were talking about this two weeks ago? About the hearing of faith. The same thing somebody else does. You will try it. You, you just, just go. Carry sling. Put stone inside. And try to weave it out. Even if it's a bird. bird. Try and see if it will enter. Because it's not just by doing that thing. There had to be an instruction. That skill had to be inspired. That this is the moment this skill was designed for. And David prevailed over, over, Philistine, over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And I like the fact that God put it there. That it was with a sling and with a stone. So that we know who the real credit goes to. If, if David had been as impressive as Goliath, it wouldn't be said like this. You say David de defeated Goliath. But David defeated Goliath with a sling and with a stone. Then we made it, it made it very clear that this thing that defeated Goliath was not supposed to be defeating the like and the ilk of Goliath's stature. And the Bible said it slew him and there was no sword. Hi, I like that. In the hand of David. Where was the sword? In the mouth of David. 
The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing the son of the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow. It's a discerner of thoughts and intent of the heart. There was no sword in his hand, but there was so much weapon of war in his mouth. For everything that Goliath said, David matched it with the word of God, inspired utterances, inspiration, and he was releasing it. He was releasing those words. So we see how David fulfilled the litmus test of love. He fulfilled the litmus test of what? The word of God. And he obviously fulfilled the litmus test of faith. Because this is not something David can do in his flesh. This is a 17-year-old boy who is still a young man. And he was defeating Goliath who had been a man of war from his youth. Who had all this amazing artillery on his shoulders, on his legs with shields and stuff. And he defeated him as though they were in a playground. How, how do you beat somebody in the final? Uh, it looked like a, you know, a, a playground. Remember Champions League 2011? Amen? Like that's, like that's the highest stage. You expect two Goliaths to show up there. But then you see someone and then you are schooled. And David schools Goliath. Amen. I wanted to reference something. You see, as, as, as leaders, and this brings me back to Champions League at some point. As leaders, we must, we must be audacious. We must, we must release words of faith in the atmosphere. And there are, there are things we see in our world that show us that these things are possible. So the greatest comeback in Champions League history happened and um, was prosecuted um, proudly by FC Barcelona. Amen. This was 2015. Luis Enrique um, was the coach of Barcelona at the time. He had played the first leg of the Champions League, maybe it was semi-final thereabouts, I think it was quarterfinals, against PSG, all right? And it was home fest. It was first at Camp Nou. And at Camp Nou, they were flogged 4-0 by PSG. 4-0. 4-0. Was it at PSG? It was first at PSG, right? It was first at PSG, 4-0. This had never been overturned. Never. Then the interview guys and the journalists came to Luis Enrique by the, you know, news roundup and stuff like that. And they said, what do you have to say about this? I mean, this is a very impossible task to do. And Luis Enrique looked at them in the face and said, if PSG can score four goals, we can score six. He said it. The match had not been played. This, this guy, he just said it. That was some audacity. Like, you expect some conservativeness. Like, actually, this is a very big, um, you know, uphill task. It's not likely, but, you know, we'll see what we can do. We believe in our crowd. We believe in... He didn't go all those sentimental route. He said, if PSG can score four, we'll score six. Guess what happened that night? Barcelona scored six. He's not a prophet, oh. He is not a man of God, oh. But he released something into the atmosphere. He released something into the atmosphere, and the people in that team caught a wind of it. And they began to resonate at that frequency. And until they scored six, they didn't stop. In fact, in the middle of the match, it was looking more impossible. They scored two extra goals. Because somebody said it is possible. There are some things that only God can inspire you to say. If you look at your level of expertise against the challenge that you're facing, you can't say some things. But if you enter into the portal of the spirit and you get a nomenclature you get an utterance you get a word you get something in the realm of the spirit that inspires an utterance you will say something that will defy your own understanding and intelligence but don't back down simply because you're you are not aware of what you have said I, I shouldn't have said that no no double down and say it again double down and say it again until it becomes a force of faith in your spirit man don't stop saying it don't stop saying it don't stop saying it and david ran and stood upon the philistine oh i like david swag 
David, he stood upon him on his big, massive, colossal body. He stood upon it, carried his own sword, slew his head. All right? And cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, wow. They didn't even believe he was dead. They thought he just fell. That he was so, ah, he's stone now. Uh, he was so rise up. He was so rise up. The guy did not stand up. Then they saw David stood upon him and then cut off his head and carried his head and showed the Philistines. They knew that indeed he was dead. The Bible says they ran. And the men of Israel and, and that of Judah, those ones too, they now received, they received inspiration and morale, morale on high. And they now started running and shouting. <laughs> 40 days after. And then they shouted and pursued Philistines until they came onto the valley and to the gate of Ekron and the wounded of the Philistines. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Sharaim unto, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. The next verse. And the children of Israel returned from the chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. The next verse. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent. So he carried the head to Jerusalem, carried the armor of, you know, Goliath, put it in his tent. And when Saul saw David, this is the powerful part. When Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as thy soul liveth, O king, I, I cannot tell. And the king said, inquire thou whose son this tripling is. The king, from where he stood, realized that nobody does this without the training of a father. He, he looked at David. He said, the credit doesn't really go to you, David. You have been trained. Somebody trained you. And David returned from the... Oh, this, this is my best picture. David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine. Abner took him. <laughs> they will converse with him. You know, there is a way warriors talk. He didn't even say congratulations. That was a good one. Just carry the boy. Maybe even carried him by the head. Uh, <laughs> it's just because look at the look at the posture of the conversation. And David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, and Abner took him and brought him to Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. What kind of an image is that? You look at a 17-year-old boy carrying the head of a of a nine-foot-tall giant in his hand, with the blood still dripping from from it, and 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 you are talking to him, and he's like. Yes, sir. And Saul said to him, whose son are you? The same question. Thou young man. You're too young for these exploits. Whose son are you? You are leveraging some father's grace. You are leveraging something that is bigger than you. There is something about you that, is, that I can't understand yet. There is something about where you came from. Whose son are you? And David said, I am the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Who is training you? Who's your father? Do you know that Saul didn't give the credits to David? You would have imagined that Saul would be too over-impressed to say, David, ah, that was amazing, that was powerful. He recognized that there was a force behind David that was bigger than David. David must have been trained. Maybe Jesse knew what he was doing, leaving him in the wilderness. Maybe. Because what if he was not in the wilderness? What if he didn't have the experience of the lion and the bear? He would have become a victim of Goliath. Maybe Jesse understood what he was doing and was sending him to the camp. Maybe Jesse understood and he said, run. Don't just walk, run. Maybe Jesse understood what he was doing when he was setting him up nicely for that grand stage. 
I don't think you, you appreciate your father enough. You don't understand him. You don't, you don't appreciate him enough because you don't understand the prophetic nuances of his decisions and his insistence. You don't understand them until you have become the kind of person you have now become. And then someone looks at you and he says, what you're doing is bigger than your age. Whose son? Whose son are you? That's what my teaching this morning is. Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We thank you, Father, because you have put us in contexts of fathers. We, we know we have spiritual fathers. We know we have biological fathers. We know we have social fathers. We have corporate fathers. We have mentors. But you are the father of all spirits. You are the father of all spirits. And whilst you are disciplining us, whilst you are giving us corrections and rebuke and instructions and righteousness, it does not feel comfortable. It does not feel palatable in the moment. But we know that this is the only pathway to share in your holiness. The Bible says in Hebrews 12. That's the only way to share in your holiness. That's the only way to share in your glory. That's the only way to manifest a certain dimension of glory that we all know did not come from us. It came from him that sits in the heavens. Father, we ask that from today, don't stop training us. Don't stop being that father over us. Don't stop putting us in context that may put us out of our comfort zone, but that's the only way to enter into our destiny, into our glory. Lord, don't stop. Don't stop being that father over us. Don't stop training us. Don't stop refining us. Don't stop transforming us. Don't stop shaping us into that image of your son. Thank you, sweet Holy Spirit, because we know we are blessed, edified, strengthened, and encouraged today. And we receive these words in all truth and all righteousness. In Jesus' precious name, we have prayed. Amen and amen and amen. Father, we give you praise. We give you praise. We give you praise. I want to encourage you. You know, don't, don't send a text out of rituals to your father today. Don't just say, oh, well, you know, it's Father's Day. Everybody's sending text messages. Do it out of understanding. Understand what you're doing. And understand that you don't only have biological fathers. Some of us don't even have biological fathers, right? And, but you, God has instituted fathers in your life. You, you have spiritual fathers. You have pastors. You have mentors. You have people who have governed your it's almost like how a product manager releases different phases of a product per time. You know, you're a product in God's agenda. And he releases you when he knows you are set and when the market is also set for you. You know, he sets up a stage for you very nicely so that the very best of your tendencies can be expressed. And so, do a proper analysis of the fathers in your life. And send them messages consistent with your understanding of their role in your life. Alright? And I think that's a very good thing to do. David understood the roles of the fathers God had placed. Because he took Saul as a father at some point as well. He took Saul as a father. He saw his own father as a father. And this was a man who, who understood honor. And these are the things that we must imbibe. And so please go back and read this chapter again. You see that this is the pathway for every one of us. God wants us to do things that are bigger than us. Killing Goliath is bigger than you. You and I know that. It's not what you should be doing. But that is exactly what faith can help you do. But it will take a service of love, understanding of God's word, and acting by faith to be positioned in such a way that will slay Goliath and give glory to God. We give you praise, O God, for this word once again. We ask that we are established in this truth and in all righteousness. In Jesus' precious name. Can we jam hands together for Jesus? Amen. Wow, what a word. For more messages, connect with our tribesmen across all social media platforms. Heartpoint Tribe.